This is The Guardian. Today, the Ukrainian artists defying Putin's war on culture. Charlotte Higgins, The Guardian's chief culture writer, was at the opera in Kyiv. The National Opera of Ukraine is a really, really beautiful building. And I'd spent the afternoon watching dancers rehearse, despite the fact that these cruise missile attacks had been very recent. There was actually, there was an air raid alert in the middle of that rehearsal, which everybody ignored. So it felt like this kind of window of relative calm, despite the fact that there had been strikes on the city. From the beginning, this was a war not just over land, but values much greater. A country's history, its language and its culture. Since Russian forces invaded Ukraine in February, they've destroyed more than 300 of the country's libraries, its state archives. They've looted museums and stolen tens of thousands of artworks that cannot be replaced. Ukraine's culture minister has called it a cultural genocide. You know, we see this on repeat through history that in times of pressure and crisis and violence, artists are both, in a sense, the most important testifiers to the truth and they're also often targets of oppression. But Ukrainian artists are refusing to be erased. Across the country, its poets are writing in their own language to preserve it. Its visual artists have turned into documentarians, keeping accounts of the brutality of this war. And the opera plays on. There was something about watching this gorgeous opera, Natalka Poltavka, set in this beautiful bucolic 19th century Ukrainian landscape. You know, this was a sort of almost like a defiant, we're going to go on as if there isn't a war happening. Even though actually a month previously, one of their principal dancers had been killed at the front line. From The Guardian, I'm Hannah Moore. Today in Focus, how art, music and dance have become weapons of resistance in the war on Ukraine. Charlotte, you'd normally be writing about subjects like the Booker Prize or the history of the BBC, but this is something different for you. You've recently returned from a trip to Ukraine, and that was the first time that you'd been in an active war zone. What made you decide to go? Well, really, there were two things. The first was that back in April, I went to the Venice Biennale and reported from there. You know, it's the biggest international art event, really. Closer to reality, the war launched by Russia against Ukraine has influenced some of the pieces this year. At the Russian pavilion, emptiness. 
None of their artists are here. The Ukrainian pavilion, on the other hand, is teeming with life. And there I met some really interesting Ukrainian artists who had really struggled to come to the Venice Biennale, which on the face of it could be seen like quite a bizarre thing to do. You know, your country is at war. But speaking to them, it became incredibly clear that they were absolutely determined to show that they had a culture, a Ukrainian culture, and they wanted to show it to the world. And talking to them more, this became very clearly set against the backdrop of what is underlying the full-scale invasion of Ukraine, which is Putin's insistence that Ukraine is part of Russia. And that's not just territorially, but crucially, it is culturally Last summer, months before he declared war, Putin published an essay titled On the Historical Unity of Russians and Ukrainians. And he wrote that the two countries share the same historical and spiritual space. And he argued that modern Ukraine is essentially a product of the Soviet era. So what he was setting out in that polemic, even before he declared war, he was declaring a war on Ukrainian culture, essentially. Yeah, exactly so. And the Ukrainians that I spoke to were talking very articulately and very persuasively about their efforts to decolonize completely from Russian culture. And so, for instance, at the National Opera, you won't see any Tchaikovsky on the bill. You know, Russian culture is not acceptable at the moment in Ukraine because Ukrainian people are seeing this as their moment to throw off the dominance of Russian culture that you know in their terms has been imposed on them for, for centuries at the expense of Ukrainian culture. As we know, Ukraine is a country in which a lot of its people have spoken Russian and a lot of writers are switching into Ukrainian and asserting this Ukrainian identity very strongly. And it, it's completely fascinating to watch. I spoke to writer and poet Ostap Slavinsky, for example. Many, many colleagues, uh, many friends and acquaintances who are Russian speaking, they cannot speak Russian anymore. They feel it as something traumatic. This language for them now is the language of uh, aggression, of violence. The language of the language of terror, that's what this full-scale aggression did to the Russian language. Charlotte, it's been 10 months now since the Russian forces invaded Ukraine. The dawn chorus that no one wants to hear. Air raid sirens in Kyiv, signaling that the full-scale invasion of a European country in the year 2022 was well underway. For the artists who were living and working there, you know, in those first few weeks, how did they respond? My impression was talking to so many people that everyone has this incredibly vivid memory of the first few hours when the war that was expected and yet not expected came in the early hours of the 24th of February and this memory is kind of sealed into people's brains. And of course, the first thing that any artist thought about under those circumstances was not, 
gosh, this would make a good material for a poem or a play. It was, of course, how do I make sure that my family is safe? Someone said to me that you can't fend off an attacker with a book of poetry. And people did very different things. So a novelist I know called Victoria Amelina quite quickly trained as a war crimes reporter gathering evidence for what people hope will be a future judicial process. Obviously, I use my soft skills, my empathy, which yeah. is also necessary for any good writer, I think. Yeah. But it's, it feels like it's not a time for fiction yet? Or Not for uh, me. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I wouldn't judge those. Especially, yeah. I understand that people who, uh, writers who left Ukraine, mm. uh, might be more tempted to uh, fictionalize what's going on here. But... Um, here uh, it, it feels wrong because I see all those real people and their stories have to be told. When it became clear that this was going to turn into a long-term grinding war, what changed in the way that artists responded? Well, I think you start to see artistic responses as a form of resistance, but also morale building. I mean, pop music has really responded very vividly to the war. And there are these extraordinary, you know, very rapidly produced, sardonic, really dark pop song lyrics emerging. I'm thinking of the poet, very, very serious and important poet called Luba Yakemchuk. During the war, she and a group of collaborators have been really making pop music. I know my psychiatrist will probably frown, but I keep having the same dream. Moscow's burning down, screaming people everywhere. Moscow is burning down and Red Square is aflame. And you have to sort of tell yourself, but actually what's really burning, alas, are you know, Ukrainian electricity substations at the moment. And then again, sort of social media. So TikTok is absolutely full of young Ukrainian military doing special dances. <laughs> special dances. Special dances to Ukrainian pop songs. And again, that's a kind of defiance. It's, it's a resistance um, and it's a morale building exercise in a sense. It's still a kind of feeling that whatever is done now is done quickly and directly. But that doesn't mean that the work necessarily lacks metaphorical or emotional depth. So one artist I met, Jana Kadarova, who's an extraordinary, wonderful artist, and she showed me part of a series of works which were beautiful round stones that she had gathered from the riverbed that look like round loaves of bread. She had actually sliced and it was playing on the idea of these traditional round loaves that in Ukrainian, and I'm probably going to slightly mispronounce this because it is a difficult word to pronounce, are called palyanitsia. And that is a word that has taken on a very extra significance during the war because it is what we call a shibboleth. 
in this case, it's a word that is pronounced very differently in Russian. And so people have been using it to figure out if the stranger approaching them in the street is Russian or not. So Palinitsia has taken on this kind of dark significance. Traditionally, this loaf was something that would be offered to a guest when they came into your home. And so it has all these traditional ideas of hospitality and warmth around it. So the idea that Jana Kadorova has made this bread, stone bread, she says it's like a stony welcome. You know, certain people are not welcome. So yeah, I mean, getting the message out abroad has been, been a really important part of what artists have wanted to do. And Alexei Sai has, he really abandoned his practice, his normal practice, in order to use his skills really, really directly for the war effort. Yeah, my name is Alexei Sai. I'm from Kiev. I'm artist. How safe has it been in the area of Kiev that you're in? No, in Kiev it's safe. It's uh, sometimes electricity is off, but we are working as hard as we can. There is no time to rest, and we have this feeling of envy for our friends who are fighting in the war. Can you explain that to me? That feeling of envy. In Kiev, it's really not easy to join the army now, and on the draft centers when. Officers see that you're artist and you have no military speciality. They just say, go home. I think I decided to, to work as artist because I think I can do some useful things as artist. Alexei, you've been really prolific as an artist. You've displayed across Ukraine, across Europe and in America as well. I've seen some of the work that you were making before the war and... One of your most notable series is made from cut-up pieces of Excel spreadsheets and vivid primary colours with these kind of emoji-like smiley faces. And it's a commentary on this kind of drudgery of globalised office culture. Um, It's funny and it's kind of tragic at the same time. But What you're making now is more like documentary work. Why did you decide to change your approach? It's because I cannot avoid the focus on that. There is some magic in art that that works. It brings better understanding anyway. It can really touch you. That's why I, I, I do this. And we really need to explain ourselves to the world. There's a video artwork that you've made that begins with the sound of a metronome and then you see Volodymyr Zelensky addressing the United Nations Security Council and he runs through all the absolutely barbaric ways in which people have been tortured and killed during this conflict. And then you go on to this sequence of 7,000 or so photographs that flash, the metronome speeds up, the images flash of dead bodies half covered in rubble, of bombed out schools and apartment buildings. 
the faces of children who've been caught in the shelling, dead animals in the roadside. And over the top of that, the voices of Russian soldiers on the phone to their mothers and their girlfriends, boasting of their so-called triumphs and the things that they've stolen. And there are a few lines that get repeated. Where did you go? The female voice asks. And the male answers, I went marauding. I have a whole apartment's worth in my pocket. What was it like for you making that video? Oh, it was it was unpleasant. It I it's the thing I I even cannot say it's is it an artwork or or what it is. It's a video that bring this overwhelming feeling of total war and again it's it's not film it's not reportage it's and it was really hard to do yeah i i sat for three weeks or more with thousands of photos but uh, yeah it brings some physical special effects to to my body also in what sense i was scratching all the time while while i made it and i lost the ability to sleep yeah you couldn't sleep Mm-hmm. I think what I see from people when they watch it, I see that they have strong feelings. And I think that's, but it's 11 minutes or 12 minutes only. And uh, for me, it was uh, three weeks, not less, of constant process. And uh, yeah, it was not easy. <laughs> Where has the film been shown so far? They show it in parliaments, in the Voss Economic Forum, in in NATO headquarters, in very important stages, I think. But, yeah, I treat it as tactical weapon more than piece of art, I think. You treat it as a tactical weapon. Can you explain that? <laughs> yes. Because it brings to people abroad, I think it brings some feeling as for us, which will help also all together win this war. I hope so. How would you like people to feel? Maybe like is not the right word, but how would you imagine people would feel when they watch it? I hope it will be not needed soon. I like people not to see this work. And I also want to forget about this work. Yeah. After war will will be ended, I think there will be no need for this video anymore. And I will make something funny. Ha ha ha. Charlotte, it's clear from having spoken to Alexei that he feels a duty to show through his artwork what Ukrainians are living through. And a lot of Ukrainian artists from different disciplines are trying to do that, to speak to the wider world. One really clear example of this was in this year's Eurovision Song Contest. The winners, of course, were the Ukrainian entrance Kalash Orchestra. And they ended their performance, and I remember this speech vividly. 
they said, please help, please help Mariupol. How important have artists been during this war in helping to keep people outside Ukraine aware of and caring about what's happening? I think it has been very important. And I think one way in which you can see that is the way in which the president of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky, has turned up at almost every important international cultural event. When I say turned up, of course, I mean virtually, but has given speeches at the Venice Biennale, at the Cannes Film Festival. He was a television star and a television producer. I mean, he really understands the way this works. And he knows that those international gathering places of culture are quite important places to get the message out. Coming up, how Ukrainian artists are fighting against the dominance of Russian culture. Charlotte, we spoke earlier about how Putin's war is not just one of territorial expansion, but an attempt to essentially erase Ukrainian culture. Looking back historically, how has Ukraine's culture been treated by Russia? Well, Ukrainians would certainly say that Russia at times has attempted violently to suppress Ukrainian culture or has patronised and belittled and minimised and caricatured Ukrainian culture. One important moment was 1937, where hundreds of Ukrainian writers and artists were shot on the orders of Stalin, which is an event known as the Executed Generation. And it is a very significant moment because it, it sort of feels like this whole generation of potentially great artists was just blotted out. So that's what Ukrainians look back on and are determined not to repeat. Ukraine's national anthem echoes across the streets of Kherson. Russian posters have been torn down. This is a culture war, a brutal battle for the soul and identity of a people. No one knows that better than the director of the Kherson Art Museum. Over five days, just before they withdrew, Russian soldiers turned up in trucks and stole the most valuable paintings, icons and sculptures. Well, that kind of gets to our central question about, you know, what what purpose does art serve during this conflict and, and more broadly in conflicts? If you look at those examples that the artists have been some of the first people to be attacked because they are a direct threat to the invading force. That's absolutely right. And every time that somebody thinks or says that art and culture is not important or is some kind of decorative add-on to our society, you know, that's a very luxurious position (laughs) to hold because actually, in reality, this stuff is life or death for a lot of people and it has been in a lot of situations. I mean, one of the stories that I reported on when I was in Ukraine was of a conductor who had been 
shot in Kherson. Shot because he had refused to comply with a demand that he conduct a concert celebrating life under Russian occupation. He refused to use his work and the price of that was, was death. I mean, you know, it, it obviously is life and death for many people. On the other side of that, there have been reports of a supposed boycott of Russian culture during this war, of radio stations dropping songs by Russian composers from their playlists, of Russian artists being apparently cancelled from appearing at art festivals such as the Venice Biennale. And the culture minister for Ukraine, Alexander Tukchenko, has written in The Guardian this week that other countries should be boycotting Russian art until this war ends. To what extent has that been happening so far? I would say not to any great extent. I mean, if you switch on Radio 3, as I frequently do, you're not going to hear any shortage of Russian composers on the radio. What you will hear is a shortage of, let's say, Russian conductors who are close to the state and who have refused to denounce the war. So a figure like Valery Gergiev, who was for many years the chief conductor of the London Symphony Orchestra and is you know, a very great musician. On the other hand, he's also extremely close to Putin and has used his cultural capital in the service of the Russian state on previous occasions. So he, he conducted a concert, for example, in North Ossetia soon after the Georgian War. You know, that, that, that's a very clear-cut example where it would be very hard to say that music and art lives in one sphere and politics lives in another sphere. Mm. In reflecting this war, as it's going on, which art forms seem to be really cutting through with people? Like, what's, what's really resonating with people in Ukraine? I spoke to a wonderful translator and scholar of Ukrainian poetry called Oksana Maximchuk and her partner, Max Ryshinsky. Um, and they're very close followers of war poetry. And what's fascinating to me is that there is so much poetry that is coming out of Ukraine now that I'm like, I'm barely keeping up with it. And I think it's because of this recognition or realization that they're living through something momentous and important that elevates their voice in their own eyes. Poetry is a very compressed form that can deal with and in fact does engage with disruptive meanings and ruptures in language. A novel, I think the novels of the Ukrainian war we'll, we'll see in years to come, not now. So yes, pop music, documentary filmmaking, poetry, the art forms that are really quick, quick, nimble, nimble art forms that can deal with the immediate. Meeting these artists, what did you learn about the role that culture plays during a crisis? I think I sort of knew this <laughs> because I am a culture journalist, but I'm not sure that I'd ever seen it in quite such a raw form, I suppose. I was presented with incredibly direct evidence that the human act of telling a story, of transforming experience into an art form, whether that's a drawing, 
a diary, a poem, a pop song. It's an absolutely basic human need. So, I mean, it seems incredibly paradoxical because there is so much destruction and there is so much incredibly upsetting and terrible, terrible events and death. But at the same time, it is a sort of creative moment. It just is, you can, you can see it. That's a human need to create that's as important in a way as the human need to eat or drink. Charlotte, thank you so much. Oh, Hannah, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure talking. That was Charlotte Higgins. She wrote loads during her reporting trip to Ukraine. She talked to chefs who are continuing to create the most beautiful food throughout this conflict. And she found out how conservationists are trying to protect the country's monuments. Much more than that as well. All her articles are at theguardian.com. Thank you to Alexi Sai and to all the other artists featured in this episode. Thanks also to the composer Ihor Zavorodny for giving us permission to use his music. This episode was produced by Tom Glasser and sound designed by Solomon King. The executive producer was Hummer Khalili. We'll be back on Monday. This is The Guardian.